Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Those long crimson gowns and the winged white bonnets are unmistakable. The iconic uniform from The Handmaid's Tale has become a symbol of women's oppression. It's been worn by protesters around the world, from Northern Ireland to Argentina. In America, activists in Washington donned the same costume to watch the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court justice accused of past sexual assault. And this year, in Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia and elsewhere, the red and white clad campaigners marched for abortion rights. Although Margaret Atwood's novel The Handmaid's Tale was published in 1985, its intimidating predictions strike many today as prescient of fresh infringements to women's autonomy. A hit television series starring Elizabeth Moss saw the story claimed as a feminist fight back. The Canadian author returns with a new novel called The Testaments. Nearly 35 years after The Handmaids were born, how has the age of Trump and ongoing climate threat influenced her writing? I'm Anne McElvoy, and today we're asking, how do politics shape storytelling? Margaret Atwood, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello. You've resisted writing a sequel for many years, over three decades. You're drawn back with the testament set 15 years after the action in The Handmaid's Tale. I wondered whether you felt you could really let rip with this again now that you'd been on screen and had another incarnation. So much well, has happened. Well, yes, because I started writing it before the first season premiered. And I, of course, had read all the scripts. So what we did try to avoid as time rolled on, and so did my book, I didn't want to be writing anything that was like a novelization of the series, but I also didn't want to be in flat contradiction to it. But luckily, we did avoid both of those things. And that involves a fair amount of sort of knitting. It involves, some, it involves some knitting, but it also involves the fact that I was in fairly close communication with the showrunner and could say, don't kill that person, and hands off that baby, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> like that. So, so that, that was all fine because they were, it was all in accordance with, I, I wasn't contradicting anything he really wanted to do. I was thinking about the mood around your writing and how it's received and how it's changed since I interviewed you a good few years ago. Oryx and Craikid had just come out. And one thing that really strikes me as different is that, particularly that Handmaid's Tale, the Testaments is sort of into a, a mood that describes your writing as prophetic. And I wonder how 
pleasurable that is or whether it's it brings not, its own burdens. It's actually not true. <laughs> I'm not a prophet. I don't have any particular insight into the future. If I did have, I would have cornered the stock market long ago. Uh, so it would be what, like one of those Back to the Future movies in which he, he goes to the future and uh, becomes a millionaire and learns what will cause him to become a millionaire, like those time loops. It's just reading, actually I have to say, reading a lot of the news, dare I say, magazine and <laughs> newspaper pieces, and in the past cutting them out and putting them in a box, which I don't necessarily cut them out anymore, but I may print them out. I collect stuff that I find of interest, and I did it for Oryx and Craig as well because I don't want to be in the position of people saying this is total rubbish and it would never happen. So I like to be able to say either it has happened or they're working on it now. Hence your attachment to the idea of speculative fiction. Hence my attachment, but also hence my, my pickiness due to having grown up amongst the scientists in which you're not allowed to say something is true unless you can produce evidence to that effect. And perhaps also your aversion to using the science fiction. Well, science fiction is a very flexible term. So let's think of it as a, as a broad banner that says wonder tales, and under that you can have various categories, one of them being werewolves and vampires and zombies, one of them being other kinds of horror stories, one of them being books about the future which need not be set on other planets, and one of them being speculative fiction, uh, which is descended from Jules Verne, who liked to write about things that he felt were about to happen or were in progress, as distinct from H.G. Wells, who wrote about Martians with tentacles coming to Earth in large canisters, at which point Jules Verne said, Mais il invente, but he makes things up. <laughs> Guess what? Yeah, Rule so nothing I, out. I don't, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not good at that kind of sci-fi, and it's not that I don't read it, because I do read it, and it's not that I don't like it, because I do like it. I'm just not good at it. And I'm not good at fantasy with dragons either, so I don't write that either, but I still vote for best dragon in show. And uh, it's still Ursula K. Le Guin in the Earthsea trilogy, later to be followed by more books on good that tip subject. There. Thank yes, you. best dragons. Thank you. Uh, most, we haven't had that on the economy. Most loquacious and wise dragons, as opposed to simply greedy dragons such as the Hobbit or simply. Uh, bazookas such as uh, Game of Thrones. Let's talk about a different kind of fear and reaction to it and the way that your book The Handmaid's Tale particularly turned into a sense of a symbol of resistance and a lot of that audience is waiting avidly to open up the testaments. To an extent you kind of almost ended up as the beneficiary of a Trump bump. Um, You're not the first person to have said so. What did you do to the last one? What? what did you do to the last one? The last person? I agreed with them. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fair-minded person. It's true. But I'm, I may be the only person on the planet who, who is such a beneficiary. And do you really feel that the mood around Donald Trump, the resistance to, to Donald Trump, you, I think the way that I think the fear, the fear inspired by the fact that he's packing the courts and looking at certain states such as Alabama who are taking this as far as they can, 
Uh, and the, the goal is to overturn Roe versus Wade and make a state claim upon women's bodies as being state property. And if I were any kind of an individualist, such as the state's claims to be full of, I would be deeply offended by that. To what extent, and when people say, well, I'm reading your book but because I'm, I'm outraged about Donald Trump or... Yeah, they what? don't tend to say that. They don't? No. What do they, they say? They just say, I'm reading your book. Uh, or they say, thank you for your book. Or they say, this is really too close to reality. But do you it think of yourself us. as inspiring a response, as in a, a sort of action response? Okay, or so as a, a sort of something that, that you am, can am I Am I doing agitprop? <laughs> is that what you're asking? You answer it. Uh, no, agitprop would have a, a plan of what to do. So if it were real agitprop, it would be like that, so agitation propaganda. Uh, no, I, I, I simply consider that I'm exploring the territory, or if you like, making a blueprint with the question attached, is this the house you wish to live in, yes or no? And if you don't want to live in this house, make another blueprint of a house you do want to live in. Let's look at the, the longer span of, of time from The Handmaid's Tale and what was going on at the time you were writing in West Berlin. Yes. So several things were going on. Number one, the Berlin Wall had not yet come down, and nobody thought it would anytime soon, except Richard Kapuczynski, who did think it would. Guess what? He was right. So there we were in West Berlin, and we were encircled by this wall, and every Sunday the East German Air Force flew by and made sonic booms just to remind us that they were there. And at that time I visited East Germany and... Czechoslovakia and Poland, where the moods were quite different in each place, but they were all Iron Curtain countries. Before that, we had just by accident been in Afghanistan six weeks before Daoud was assassinated, kicking off the train of events that we have been living with ever since, and followed by Iran, where the Shah was still in power and was to remain so for a mere eight months. It, dead coming events cast their shadows before, not in my mind, though my father said, don't go up to Afghanistan, there's going to be a war there. And I don't know how he knew that. But he was well up on the subject through Alexander the Great, <laughs> who said, Afghanistan is very easy to march into, but very hard to march out of, and everyone who has tried it has found that. So, so we were just going around the world on the way to the Adelaide Festival as one does. And uh, therefore I saw those societies right before they, various things came tumbling down, similarly with East Germany. But also World War II, the people that I knew after World War II, because I'm old enough to known people who really were in the resistances, most noteworthily in, in um, France and Poland. I knew some of those people, and Holland as well, which had a very well-organized resistance. Life in the resistance, who got shot, who managed to escape, who collaborated, and who, oddly enough, appeared to be collaborating but was actually feeding information to the resistance, and there were a number of those. In a totalitarian regime, if you're not appearing to collaborate, you're going to be dead pretty soon. And I'm just reading about one of your own absolute dictators, namely Henry VIII, in his later years, and the life of Thomas Cromwell, the Aunt Lydia of his time, who was actively furthering the schemes of Henry while secretly holding some pretty Protestant religious views. So uh, make of that uh, what you wish. 
But all of these regimes have such people because human beings are what they are and we're quite capable of putting up camouflage exteriors to disguise our real aims and behavior. We live in such unpredictable times that you'd have to be an idiot to try to predict definitively the outcomes of some of the chaos and strangeness that we see developing around us. But I am hopeful about human nature to the extent that I think you can keep some of the people down some of the time and most of the people down most of the time, and but you can't keep all of the people down all of the time. And do you think that regardless of the greater sophistication of manipulation. I'm worried about that. It was a lot easier to forge passports in the 1940s. What can we say? It was a lot easier to change your identity then. You could do it if you had the tools. You could create a whole new identity for yourself, but you would have to uh, hack into records and get rid of some of the ones that are there, the ones pertaining to you. It must be very irritating for, to try and have labels put on, on your fiction or to be asked kind of why you do what you do because you, you write because you're... Because I must. Because <laughs> I'm driven. What, what can I say? That was definitely the correct answer. Yeah, that the one I yes. <laughs> I don't think that's a perfect term. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my sort of irksome question was, is the way that you view your fiction is looking at a world that we can't envisage yet in some ways. Well, unfortunately, I think we can envisage it all too well. If you want people to fall into the big hole in the road that you know is up there around the corner, you don't tell them anything about it. What are you thinking of there? Well, if you're heading towards Gilead, if I want you to be in Gilead, I'm not going to tell you anything about it, am I? If I want you not to be in Gilead, I'm going to say, is, are you sure that this is what you want to do? Because this is where it's going to end up, maybe without the outfits. And Gilead without the outfits, we were having an interesting debate in my office when we were preparing to come and see you. Is it about shoes? No, but we were coming onto those. Because <laughs> <laughs> we now know, we now know that you have, you have a few shoes and clothes weaknesses to share with us. But we were actually, we were rather serious, uh, even more serious than shoes debate, in which someone on my team who said, I really, you know, I kind of read it absolutely viscerally. And I said, well, of course, I read it, perhaps I'm a bit older, perhaps I've been you know, reading your fiction for, for a long time. I was a bit sort of, you don't like the word dystopia, but that's probably the way that I read it as I sort of, mm, you know, imagine Don't it. know there, yes. And it was just very interesting to me that you could have two readers, two female readers, as it happened, who just had quite just a different ways of approaching it. She really was practically saying, I'm really worried this could happen. Yes. Do you identify more with one of us? Well, there's more than two kinds of readers. So my usual way of thinking about this is you, you make the book the best way that you can, and then you heave it into the ocean in a bottle. You don't know who's going to pick it up. You don't know what they're going to think of it. And it is really like a musician playing a musical score. It may be the same score with, with this musician and that musician, but the interpretations are going to be different. And so it is with reading. And uh, that's okay. It has to be okay because that's the way it is. Can I dictate to the readers how they should read the book? I cannot. Has a reader ever come back with a, a thought that perturbed or oh, yes. shocked you? They certainly have. So I think my favorite is the man at a Q&A at one of these events who said, well, of course, The Handmaid's Tale is autobiography. And I said, no, it's not. He said, yes, it is. And I said, no, it's not. It's set in the future. He said, that's no excuse. 
hard one to win that one. Uh, no, you can, it's, it's really, really hard. I mean, somebody who thinks they know more about you than you, you know about serious. yourself. Yes. Part of what drives the, the catastrophe and what drives the belief of the, the sons of Jacobs, the religious extremists that, that we encounter. You think they don't exist. You think that? I think they do they exist. They do exist. They may not be called that, but there are a number of paramilitary white supremacists at work in the United States, even as we speak. And that, that's a good example where I would ask you, did you plot it onto something you'd read about, or do you take yes. an idea and then let it grow? Yes, I did. And, and that would be an example you would find somewhere in your study. Some, this, this somewhere, in, somewhere in world history, there's the odd military coup. <laughs> I don't know whether you've noticed that. Uh, yes. But so many of the problems, the reason that they're able to sort of presumably move from the fringes of society into because the there is because is, there is chaos. Is, is so chaos. so climate chaos, driven chaos. Uh, climate driven, environmentally driven, pollution driven, all of the things that we are saddled with today. All of these things eventually result in uh, economic and social chaos, because with climate crisis comes lower crop yields and with lower crop yields eventually comes food shortage and joblessness and all of those kinds of things that feed into social chaos and angry resentful French revolutionary types of feelings. And that you're a well-known very seasoned activist on climate change you think you're winning? Okay first of all the real activists are people who do nothing else. I'm just somebody who doesn't happen to have a job so I can't be fired, so I often get asked to support things, which I do because I can't get fired. The large collective you is making some progress. The Extinction Rebellion people are moving the political needle somewhat because there are a lot of them, and pretty soon they're going to be able to vote. And you'd have to be an idiot as a politician to not recognize that. So even some young Republicans, not old Republicans, but young Republicans are saying, we have to acknowledge this and come up with something. It sounds like you feel you almost have to go to an extreme to come back to the middle when you talk that, about extinction that, rebellion. That, that seems, well, they're not the extreme. Come on, things extreme, could get a lot more extreme than that. But it does tend to be that way. So over here, over there in reaction, and then back to the middle of, of something that's workable and continuous. So the, the problem with the bursts of enthusiasm is can you keep them up? Let's talk about another great social step forward that's now producing the, the kind of problems of progress in its wake, and that's the Me Too movement. In some ways, I mean, all these years ago, when you were writing The Handmaid's Tale and other essays on feminism and exploring the roots of your own feminism and its changes, you've had a, quite a long life. No kidding. You're still having it, I think. Yes. <laughs> she <laughs> says tactfully. Yes. Hastily. <laughs> but was it this the moment in a way, one of the moments you'd been waiting for? Not quite, but sort of. So in, in the general area, but going back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, on which are, are predicated the Declaration of Women's Rights and the Declaration of Indigenous Rights. So this notion of universal human rights, it comes in after World War II because of what happened to the Jews and other people in, in World War II. So people get together and they spell out what things ought to happen in a civilized society and who should have what rights. And we've, we've been thinking along those lines ever since. And universal 
Declaration of Human Rights. If it's universal, then all humans are human, and that would include women, and it would include indigenous people, and it would include men. <laughs> so nobody gets to be a non-human person. That's an important concept. It has by, by no means been implemented in every country in the world. It has by no means been implemented in every sector of every part of society, but it's important to keep it in mind as a principle or else you're going to have to deal with who, who doesn't get these things. Right, so Me Too comes along who, says, Me Too this is comes along, and, and then you get a fundamental violation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is fair process and innocent until proven guilty. And you, you feel, just to sort of pull that apart a bit, that that, that is what, what has happened? In, in some in cases. Reasons. In yeah. some, but, but by no means all. It's not harmful to women to say we should respect the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, because if you're not going to respect it, women's rights are not going to be respected. Where does your worry lie? What is, what is the, what's the sort of skew here that you think okay. is, is my, taking my us worry, away from My a, worry lies a is path. that if you, if you create, which was for a while but isn't anymore, because Me Too has gone through a number of different phases. You're no longer in phase one of Me Too. But there was a moment there when it was an invincible weapon to which there was no counterweapon. And whenever you have an invincible weapon to which there is no counterweapon, some people will take advantage of it, which they did. And in a way, that, that seemed to and transgress a lot of the, the, the lessons that you'd been learning from the Cold War societies where Not just the Cold War, you know, the history of lynching in the United States, it's, it's the history of, of any social moral panic in which to be accused is to be guilty. I think we're now in a more reasonable uh, so, space, it, and the, the organizations that I support in this respect are Equality Now and the After Me Too ROSA program. These organizations take a balanced view. So, so yes, it's women. Also because you knew people you felt were being wrongly treated or wrongly. I treated. read the newspapers. Not much doubt about that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so but I wondered if there had been any sort of more, more there, personal there, there reasons. There were a number why. of of cases, and there was all, there were also attempts to set them up. So uh, attempts and attempts to make false accusations, which the Me Too's and women's organizations would embrace, and then it would all be revealed that it was a sham, and they'd be left looking stupid. And there were a number of attempts like that by people who were hostile to women and women's rights. So I, I think what people learned from that is just do your due diligence as you would as if you were a journalist, and don't create absolutely invincible weapons and don't assume that any one person in society is not a human being. There is a bigger cultural question, is, is whether pushing things down the legal route, is that, do we need to do more than that, or does that bring you back to what, your territory yeah. where you worry about... Well, courts can be corrupted, just as, just as any other section of society can be, and I don't know whether you've noticed what's happening, I'm sure you have, is in Russia, where they're... They're using the courts to make these multiple repeated charges against demonstrators in, in Moscow, and they, they get time in jail, they walk out of jail, they get arrested again and stuck back in through a court system. So the, the courts are not necessarily, especially if they're just an arm of the totalitarian arrangement, 
uh, they're not necessarily any stamp of purity, but if, if you have a reasonably kind of functioning democracy in which the court system is, is separate from the executive, and there is a body of law, then you've got some hope. But you, you still have a lot of miscarriages of justice. You get you have this innocence uh, movement in the United States which deals with people who have been wrongly convicted, and, and, there, and there are a lot of them. It's, it's not the answer to everything. So you have but no qualms, no reservations about standing up for a man you felt was being wrongly accused or convicted? I don't know whether you're standing up for the person. I think you're standing up for the principle. You may not know the person at all. The line's not always clear, is it? Well, people then try to make it about the person, but it should be about the principle. Because if you're not going to support those principles, then you're going to toss out the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all the things attached to it, and we're just back to might is right. We're completely back to might is right. You, you got actually quite a lot of what we now call pushback uh, for some I did of these then. That was a couple of years ago. Mm. Uh, some, you referred to as a bad feminist. What makes... A bad or a good feminist? Oh. <laughs> Which of the 75 different kinds would you like to talk about? Because these views are uh, widely divergent. So so I think rather than saying what makes a good or a bad one, you, you probably have to say what are your interests? What are your particular interests? So I'm not the kind that thinks that all male babies should be killed except for 10% kept for breeding purposes. I'm not that kind. Are you? <laughs> that, that's left quite a bit of wriggle room, though, hasn't uh, it? Yes, but, but there, there are no, many, you, you can see what many we, different shades. So I'm, I'm the charge was, was a certain way that feminists well, well, were supposed to think, right? Yeah, there was a certain way fem, for fe, some feminists had other feminists or other women were supposed to think, and then you're in the age, then you're in the area of big brother is watching you, except in this case it was big sister. So, so hear the party line or we will stomp on you with our large boots, at which point I don't have a job, so <laughs> fire me, so fire me. What are you going to do? Be fired from trash, the trash my reputation. International League go, go ahead. Acceptable Feminism. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm interested in the, the kinds of organizations that I have mentioned who are working to improve laws and conditions for women. I'm not interested in, in the kind that says trans women are not women. I'm not interested in the kind that says let's kill all male babies except for 10%. Not those kinds. You mentioned Roe versus Wade. Yes, of course, definitive uh, abortion law and establishment uh, in the United States. It's become totemic. Do you seriously believe that it could be overturned? Oh, yes. Um, Remember what I said about courts. So if you pack the court, if you um, uh, rearrange the judicial system, I think you you could quite easily get some, some judgments that would overturn it. Is the state allowed to claim possession of people's bodies? Because that's what it is. And there is an instance in which men's bodies are claimed, and that would be the draft. So conscription, the draft, the state claims the right to take men's bodies, stick them in the army, and and send them off to war. In that case, the state pays for your food, your lodging, your clothing, your training, your medical expenses. So if they're going to conscript women's bodies, which is what forced childbirth amounts to, they ought to pay for all those things. It's a slightly odd time to be reflecting on points of the the far or even further right uh, in the United States because a lot of these 
themes were tied up with the idea of a religious right that was trying to undo. You, you think that's not there? Well, I, listen to the end of my question and just just tell me how how you see it. Yeah, Donald Trump doesn't really come anywhere near those circles. This uh, is of course not, not but classic the, the, uh, religious right argument. It's no, but mixture. but Mike Pence does. So so the funny mixture is this, and it's very biblically justifiable. So the way they would view Donald Trump is not that he's a righteous man. He's no Samuel the prophet. That he's not. Here's what the Bible views as a tool of God. So they would they would take the view that no, he's not a righteous person and he's a pussy grabber and all of these kinds of things. Excuse me, am I allowed to say that? Well, you just did. I just did. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Fire me. <laughs> <laughs> we don't care because he's doing what we want. He is, God's implement as Nebuchadnezzar, etc., etc., and Ahasuerus and what have you, for doing the will of us, which they equate with the will of God. And you see that as the will of Donald Trump or a different story? Oh, I think Donald Trump is simply an opportunist. I I don't think he uh, has any particular religious convictions whatsoever. He's never demonstrated any. He will pay a certain amount of lip service, but it's very minimal. I can't let you go uh, here in London. You, you've you arrived in a little, little bit of a constitutional storm. No kidding. <laughs> you might have noticed. Uh, we just sent Parliament home, and uh, we're trying to figure out what, where our unwritten constitution, speaking of your university... Yeah, maybe better to write things down. You think we should have a written constitution? Probably, yeah. Are you going to come and help? Help no, 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 not me. I'm too <laughs> old. Uh, but but look back in your own history. It's it's Cavaliers versus Roundheads all over again with the you know who playing Charles the First. And who's you know who? You know who. But our large audience beyond uh, the language big, hotel in London. My big problem. girl's blouse person. I had to have that explained to me because I didn't know what it was. This is Boris Johnson. It's Prime a well-known no uh, insult, or was 15 years ago. An old-fashioned insult. A big yeah. girl. What do you make of big girls' blouse? I didn't know what to make of it. I, I didn't know how to pronounce it. Was it big girls' blouse or big girls' blouse? And why was it a blouse rather than an evening gown or bathing suit or some other article of apparel? Uh, I was really quite puzzled, but as a colonial, I often am. If your queen is your head of state, she uh, she pre- is, but pre- she would never say big girls' blouse. I don't. Th- yes, I, I think don't she think she would ever say that. But she was had to formally approve the prorogation, uh, suspending of parliament. Do you think the queen made a good, good decision? The queen is an, is a constitutional monarch. She kind of has to do it. She has to do it. Do you admire the uh, queen? Does she come within a pat? Would would one describe the queen as a feminist? Well, somebody of my age, dear. <laughs> Remembers the war. The royal family was excellent during the war. They could have gone to the Bahamas, but they didn't. They stuck it out. So you're sticking with the Queen? Well, no, just a minute now. Oh, you, you said, did I yeah, admire here comes them? The yeah, 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 of course. They were great during the war. We'll never forget it, people of my age. You had a fantastic fashion shoot with a newspaper here in Britain. Um, yes. And you were... You were rather marvellously in your pom, weren't you, with a lot of very foxy, quite cutting-edge designers. Is this the way we're likely to catch you at home? I think that would be very unlikely. Uh, but I got the hair extensions. They're in a bag in my cellar. I just don't quite know how to put them in yet, but I think I might offer it up as a fundraiser at an auction. You know, give my charity of choice lots of money and I'll put the hair extensions in and turn up at your house. How about that? Do you think that would be it, good? It might work around Halloween Would you, would you pay for that? I, I, th- I think there's definitely a market for that. Margaret Atwood's hair extensions. <laughs> 
Margaret Atwood, thank you very much for joining us today. And thank you. From hair extensions to climate change and hashtag me too, we've covered it all. So do let us know what you think. Would you bid for Margaret Atwood's hair extensions or even wear them? Should hashtag me too go beyond the courts? And what makes a bad feminist or even a good one? Write to us radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. Please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can read our review of The Testaments. Subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for £12 or $12. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.